Okay, welcome to the latest episode of Screen Talk, IndieWire's podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Cohn, the chief film critic and senior editor at IndieWire, and I'm joined, as always, by Ann Thompson out in Los Angeles. How's it going, Ann? All good. I'm back from uh, Central Europe, prepping for Comic-Con and, and all the stuff that's coming up. It seems like every time we talk, there's another big thing that's either happening or about to happen. We don't really get downtime just because it's the summer. I'm catching up on TV. That's what I'm doing, man. Like, I've, I'm almost done with Fargo, and <laughs> I'm getting through Veep, and I'm getting through Louis C.K. That's what I'm doing. Well, and this is sort of an interesting time in terms of the film festival world. You were just at Carlo Vivari. I'll be heading off to Locarno next month. And those are relatively big undertakings for those of us who have to you know, travel halfway around the world to get there. But at the same time, there, there are all these things going on in the film festival world outside of the festivals that are happening. Just yesterday, we heard that Tom Hall is leaving the Sarasota Film Festival uh, you did a big piece about the Los Angeles Film Festival leadership changing, and we heard about the opening night for New York Film Festival. So it doesn't have to be a film festival for film festivals to kind of dominate the headlines in our little space. Let's talk a little bit about the Los Angeles Film Festival, because that was a pretty significant story. Now, you touched on some of the major staffing changes in a pretty extensive piece, and that's really your neck of the woods. So, so why don't you fill us in on that? Well, basically, David Anson, who's a very respected um, ex-film critic out of uh, Newsweek, put in five years as the artistic director of the Los Angeles Film Festival, which is a wide-ranging... It's, it's always had a, a, an interesting identity as a festival that was actually put on by film independent, in the sense that they always chased after big Hollywood premieres, which I never quite understood. I mean, if it's Guillermo del Toro, it's one thing. If it's Michael Bay, it's another. You know, I I, I kind of questioned uh, that identity. But what's what's going on is that the director of the LA Film Festival, who's a Hollywood trained producer named Stephanie Elaine, basically she and David were not seeing eye to eye about the about the programming, and she clearly wants to move in a more populist, less international uh, direction. And that, that may actually be what needs to happen for this for the festival to succeed. I don't know, but I would hate to see uh, them throw the good quality films out the window. Uh, <laughs> Elvis Mitchell, the celebrity uh, interviewer who has himself become a celebrity, uh, very well known uh, around Los Angeles. He's very popular as a as an interviewer and a quote-unquote curator uh, over at the uh, Film Independent L.A. County Museum uh, film series. But, you know, the question is who does all the legwork? Who does all the, the culling and the looking for film because they've lost their programmer, Doug Jones, who's very good at that. And they have a woman named Maggie McKay who's still there, but we wonder if she's going to stay. And so is Elvis Mitchell really going to manage uh, the new uh, L.A. Film Festival team? No, it'll be Stephanie Elaine who manages it. And it's it's the same thing that happened with Rose Quo over at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. She wanted to be more involved with the programming of the New York Film Festival. Well, she ended up losing her job, and now she's happily ensconced in uh, China with the King. Dao uh, Film Festival there, very very well financed. So right. she's she's uh, she's moved on, but now Stephanie Elaine has succeeded in becoming more involved in the content of the LA Film Festival, and it's just going to be a question of who they bring in to do the uh, the real work. 
Well, you know, the interesting thing that's sort of beneath all of this stuff is, is the influence that these festivals can have. Now, Los Angeles Film Festival is not Sundance, it's not the Cannes Film Festival, but it does provide a certain kind of showcase for movies at two different ends of the spectrum. I mean, on the one hand, some of the movies that are in competition at LAFF, they, they seem to have on and off years, but these really small films that maybe didn't make the cut at some of the bigger festivals can really shine at a f- festival like the Los Angeles Film Festival, just by virtue of the fact that they can get more exposure. But then, you know, they've also shown things like Transformers or other kinds of more tentpole blockbuster films that use the festival environment in another way. Yeah, they'll still get the big, they'll still get, they'll still have the, the distributors who want to have LA premieres at that festival. That's not going to go away. I, I guess what struck me about it and talking to the, um, the people behind, I mean, I would put South by an L.A. film festival and uh, Tribeca in, in the in the cat and even Carla Navari, you know, in, in the category of uh, or Locarno uh, of festivals that are not at the top end of must attend, you know, but they're solid, good festivals, but they don't get they, they have a tougher time getting those world premieres that everybody's fighting about. That's what Telluride and and Toronto are, are sort of tussling over. So so it's it's an interesting question of, of you know, how does a film pop? How do how do you get audiences to come? How do you how do you create events at these festivals? And more and more they're booking television. Even in Carlo Viari they were booking, you know, true detective and and the normal heart. And, you know, the good stuff is, is at HBO. <laughs> and, and, and I keep talking to people about that. I mean, uh, Billy Friedkin and, and Sherry Lansing were, were at Carla Vivari. And, and, you know, he's going to do um, a, a television thing for HBO. And, and she watches nothing but tele- television, right. I mean, just look, like everybody else. The Locarno Film Festival has some great stuff that you will only see on the festival circuit, but it's also opening with Lucy, the Luc Besson film starring Scarlett Johansson. So there is something of a value to finding that kind of balance, and it tells you something about the value of film festivals in general, which is that in an ideal situation, you can get that big stuff without sort of selling your soul, as it were, you know, and I agree with that completely, that and that's exactly what I'm challenge. asking yeah. Stephanie Elaine to to keep in mind. Yeah, right. but and she's she's got another agenda. I mean, she's looking at multicultural, uh, you know, interactive, uh, you know, populist Los Angeles oriented. She's looking for something that may be admirable and and local, and and maybe that's a new definition of of what the LA Film Festival will be. I'm just I'm just sorry to see. I would hate to see them, you know, throw out. Uh, a lot of the good programming that that they could also have. Well, you know, it's interesting because I mentioned earlier the New York Film Festival, which this week announced that it's opening uh, with the world premiere of David Fincher's Gone Girl. Now, that's a great get for that festival, but it's going to be one of maybe two or three world premieres overall, you know, and that's a festival that really can get away with sort of showing the best of the best, and there's a value in that as well, uh, just this sort of ability to say, these are the movies that you need to know about if you're a serious movie person. Absolutely, but 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 you know, David Fincher's opened the New York Film Festival before with 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 a social network, and 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 the the question there is, you know, do do they they every festival needs that glitzy like like Lucy? They need that glitzy opening night with the red carpet and the patrons and the donors and the and the party. They're going back to Tavern on the Green, which I always loved. Very the exciting film festival. That was the bigger there. news. Now, it did. wasn't. It wasn't the big news. Wasn't Gone Girl? We figured that was going to open in. It's <laughs> where the party was. Tavern on the green. All right. <laughs> Finally. Yeah, I might actually show up for that. <laughs> 
We'll have to do a special New York edition from Tavern on the Green. I think, uh, you know, we're going to get used to talking about red carpets a lot in the next couple of weeks because we're going to see so many of them with the fall season coming up. You know, just just seeing that Gone Girl has a premiere date tells you how much is about to come our way. You know, the fall season is basically upon us now with the with the next sort of round of releases. The Toronto lineup will come out. The uh, Telluride lineup is, is being locked as we speak. So what I wonder when I hear these sort of things is because there's some kind of narrative to the way we talk about movies throughout the year, are we in danger of losing touch with the movies we're really excited about right now? I mean, Boyhood is doing really well. It opened. Uh, people love it. It's a major movie. Grand Budapest Hotel is another successful film that actually opened all the way back in March. Uh, are those movies going to still stand a chance in two months, three months, when uh, we have all these other Oscar-y movies that are being thrust in front of us? We're going to go to Telluride, you and me, and we're going to go to Toronto, and we're going to find uh, the movies that will be in the Oscar conversation, whether it's uh, Gonzalez in Eritu's, you know, Birdman, or whether it's Wild, or, or whatever it is. It's a crucible, and, and there will be disappointments. There will be movies that fall off, you know. Are we going to see Terrence Malick's new movie what what are what are what are the other ones you're looking forward to that are that are going to knock everybody's socks off they could also be disappointing well you know look i i would be surprised if paul thomas anderson's inherent vice isn't interesting but there's you know other movies that are sort of question marks i mean i think angelina jolie has shown some ambition as a filmmaker whether or not her unbroken is going to unbroken it could be. I mean, it certainly has that Oscar-y vibe to it. Whether or not it works as a movie is a different story. I mean, if this was something that was playing, you know, without any festivals and dropped into the middle of the summer, we would not expect much of it. So there, there's already sort of marketing forces in play that are trying to shape how we anticipate these movies. And my instinct is really, really to reject that and to be very skeptical of anything except for, you know, filmmakers whose work tends to be quite strong Fincher is a great example of that. I mean, I can't wait for Gone Girl. Me neither. Me you know? neither. And, and um, even even things like Noah Baumbach's While We're Young, I think he's going into some really interesting directions lately, and that's another uh, you know Ben Stiller project. And, and I think you know that Stiller, when he tends to go towards the, the dramedy side of the spectrum, is, is in his best suit. So there's a lot of stuff that I, I legitimately can't wait to see but there's going to be so much stuff that we're going to be told to be excited about that I really just want to take it as it goes. And, and for now, just sort of stick with the things that I'm already excited about because I've seen, like Boyhood, for example. If Boyhood is somehow steamrolled by 10 movies that come out in the fall, it would, it no, would no, no, you no. Know. Here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. You, you are one of many film critics who, uh, you know, and, and so am I, and we're going to just put, we're going to put that film on our 10 best list and you're going to vote for it at the uh, New York film critics or whatever, you know, it, it, it's, it's all going to get done. I, I will vote for it at the, at the broadcast film critics. It, it will all wind up uh, being backed and supported uh, by the critics at the end of the year. Year, which is a valuable part of that process. Another another thing that this shows you is that as much as we tend to pick these easy targets like the blockbusters that, that are kind of forgettable but still dominate everyone's attention, Transformers being uh, chief among them, I think there is something similar that takes place with the fall season with a much larger spectrum of movies in the sense that whether or not these are good products, 
we're going to sort of bring these expectations that they'll deliver. I want to turn the conversation to uh, a different uh, sort of situation, which is when we have certain expectations and uh, whether or not the filmmaker delivers on them doesn't necessarily influence the quality of the product. And that's a sort of long-winded way to bring Woody Allen into the conversation. Um, so the reviews dropped today, my own included, for Magic in the Moonlight, which is Woody Allen's new comedy, and it's very much a Woody Allen movie. And this is something that I find to be tremendously frustrating because I love Woody Allen as an idea, as a concept, and often as a, as a storyteller, as well as just specifically the way that he writes characters, the way he writes dialogue. I find it to be incredibly frustrating when it doesn't seem like he tries. And Magic in the Moonlight, which stars Con Firth, is this jazz-era uh, stagecraft character who debunks uh, mystics and falls in love with one of them, played by Emma Stone, it's so obviously a Woody Allen comedy and yet just sort of bland and forgettable that it just feels like he's not trying. And I, I found this to be a fascinating sort of uh, tennis match between the Woody Allen who can do good things and the Woody Allen who just does Woody Allen things. You know, like last year, Blue Jasmine, it seems like Kate Blanchett just sort of owned that movie. She just did her thing, you know, whereas this movie, which I know you haven't seen yet, it's, it's really just sort of... It's a Woody Allen movie that he wrote an idea down on a scrap of paper and just sort of, you know, let it happen organically from there. And I find that to be really frustrating about his whole one movie a year rhythm, you know? I mean, it, obviously it makes sense that this is coming out in the middle of the summer and not in that he did fall season because people would forget it even faster. But I, I just don't think that this is something that is going to last. I'm going to see it on Monday. But what, what I will suggest to you is that he's doing the same thing every year and i would say that he has been on the downslope of his best work ever since what was it called i'm losing my mind um d debunking harry demanding harry deconstructing harry but that was a great drum roll because harry. i have to that say is the last great film that that he made in my humble opinion and I'm that was really a while glad ago you said that because it's and then, everybody has their own answer to that it's almost like a, a mad lib like bad woody allen movie insert here you know it's like some people say that that was the last great one some people say match point was the last great one it really which i did not care for i did yeah. not care for match point but i loved i did love midnight in paris and i will say to you that what happens sometimes now the the the, the paradigm is that sometimes he lucks out he gets the right combination of a location of, of a story that works of, of a group of actors that work and, and magic is created and he did do that i believe in, in with midnight in paris and the blue jasmine he lucked out because kate blanchett ran with the ball and and you know as 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 much as it may have been you know tennessee williams infused or or whatever you know happened there she delivered it. I haven't seen this. I'll see it on Monday. Uh, my guess from everything you're saying is that he didn't, he did not strike, strike kismet this time. I've seen, I've seen him do worse. You know, I, I did suffer through scoop and, and from Rome with love, for example, but this is one of those situations where it's just frustrating because it, it is clearly one of his movies. It's just not one of the stronger installments. And yet, you know, the fact that he's still at it, you know, and turns 80 next year should be sort of impressive on some level. And, you know, you just wish the, the end result was stronger. I want to turn to a, another filmmaker who invites certain kinds of expectations. And I, I think this is interesting because Zach Braff 
did an interview with IndieWire in 2004 when his first feature, Garden State, premiered at Sundance, saying that he wanted to make movies like Woody Allen. Now, he certainly wasn't able to keep up the same track record because it took him a decade to make Wish I Was Here, which opens this week. That now, This is a movie that was funded by hundreds of people through Kickstarter, and that was a big deal because it showed that somebody like Zach Braff can command that sort of fan base and produce the exact movie he wants to make. It's just frustrating to me that this is the movie he wanted to make. It's sort of this bland, apatowish, uh, man-child comedy that I found to be grating when not weirdly offensive in terms of the way it depicted certain uh, character types, both men and women. But, you know, some of the last land and probably some of the people who invested in, in this particular project will be satisfied so the question I have for you, Anne, since I know this is another one you haven't seen yet, is <laughs> should we... Here's the thing. You, you can respond to this because I, I find that what's, what's interesting about this whole situation is, is not so much that Zach Braff can make the not-so-great movie that he wanted to make so much as that lots of people wanted to, him to make it. And, you know, is there a certain value in that kind of empowerment now, you know, are, should, should more filmmakers take advantage of that Kickstarter possibility, especially the ones who seem to struggle to, to work through the system that the industry gives them? Well, he did get some, some backlash. And by the way, I'm just going to say for the record that my goal in life is to avoid seeing movies that I'm not going to like, which may seem like a strange goal, but, but it is my, I, I would, I would rather watch a good television show than a bad movie. So there was no good word on that film out of, out of Sundance. Uh, so I, I just didn't go. Basically, the question is how big uh, a fan base is going to support uh, the movie. That, that, that's the real question. They helped him to make it. But but the movie's more expensive than that, you know, and and uh, it'll be interesting to see how Focus does with a movie that basically is getting very mixed reviews, um, you know, in the marketplace. Is is there enough of a of a want to see for something that 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 isn't you know necessarily getting a great response? Focus features is supposedly more commercially oriented and less critically driven now. And uh, this is going to be a really good test. I have no objections whatsoever uh, to Spike Lee or or any other filmmaker who has a big fan base, Kevin Smith or whoever, raising money uh, for, for these things if they want to. Uh, they should. They should totally do it and they should make their fans happy. But if it's a more expensive movie than that, it's going to be a question of, of did who's involved, who's telling them how to make a good movie, Who's helping them? Who's the producer? Who's who's giving them good steerage in terms of 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 how good the, the script is? And right. So in my review, I said I wish that Brad had crowdsourced the idea along with the budget because honestly, <laughs> you know what what I found frustrating about it is it's not only that that it's a more expensive project, but it's a relatively commercial one just in terms of you know his draw and and kind of the story that it's telling, which isn't that adventurous. Spike Lee is a different example. I mean, he didn't tell his Kickstarter backers that he was actually going to do a remake of Ganja and Hess for The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which, by the way, does still not have a, distri a distributor, as far as I can tell. But I saw the movie. I mean, there's just no way that he could have made this very vulgar, very low-budget, kind of bizarrely surreal vampire movie. 
you know, that does feel like it's in tune with the energy of black exploitation films, but for a more contemporary sensibility. There's no way he would have made that on a bigger budget with bigger investors, for, certainly not for a studio. That, to me, is, is, is where the, the notion of the Kickstarter movie really comes into play, especially for these established creatives who, you know, are maybe too bold for a risk-averse industry. But let's move on a little bit because we have to talk about our picks for the film's opening this week, and clearly neither of us are going to pick the Zach Braff movie, and there's lots of other stuff opening. So, Anne, why don't you tell us about, about your favorite movie that's a hidden theater? I'm going to go with a movie I saw at Sundance, which was also the opener at Carla Vivara, which is I Origins, which uh, Mike Cahill is one of these filmmakers who, when you see his movie, you go, okay, this is the same filmmaker who made Another Earth, and, and there's no question that he has a singular voice. He's uh, He comes from a brainy uh, family of scientists and this movie posits all these questions of who are we, you know, existential questions, philosophical questions, you know, questions of reincarnation and spirituality, all, you know, coming from a very scientific approach. And um, Michael Pitt is, I think, terrific as this young scientist and Brett Mar uh, Britt Marling, who was also in Another Earth and helped to co-write and produce that movie, but in this case is is, is an actress. She's very good as a brainy scientist uh, who happens to be a, a woman and who becomes the the romantic interest as well. So it's it's a really good movie and not for everyone because it is a uniquely strange uh, perspective on these subjects and and some people will just think it's a lot of hooey. But I really got I, I really went along for the ride and uh, recommend it. Well, if people are curious about it, they should definitely stay away from the trailer, which actually tells you pretty much every major development of the film right down to one that takes place in its closing minutes. So, you know, it's one of those instances where it's better to kind of get swept up in the mystery of the plot, which, you know, I agree with you. I think just, just very briefly, I had a lot of issues with Another Earth because it felt like it was too transparently soul-searching. Like, it was just really obvious what it was trying to go for in a big way. And this one seems to sublimate that same uh, energy and, and, and kind of uh, poetic sensibility into a plot that's a little more compelling. Uh, it's, it's a little over the top at times for me, you know, just, just in terms of, of what it's going for. But certainly Michael Pitt is, is good in it and, uh, and Britt Marling as well. And I think that there's a self-aware element to the screenplay in certain parts where uh, one character actually pokes fun at Michael Pitt's character for kind of talking in too lyrical a fashion about, you know, the, the need he feels to find the answer to, to the mystery he's trying to solve. So what I think is, is strong about this movie is that it's, it's clearly an improvement over the flaws of the previous one, and it made me more interested in what Mike Cahill will do next. Now, my, my favorite movie that's opening this week is actually one that you don't even have to leave your house to, to watch. It's the Congress Ari Fulman's follow-up to uh, Waltz with Bashir, you couldn't ask for a more different animated film than what he did in his previous one. Both of them combine live action and sort of this fascinating rotoscope style, but this one is actually sort of closer in form to uh, being John Malkovich in terms of the meta quality of the narrative. It stars Robin Wright. It's this actress named Robin Wright, basically herself, in this weird near-future world where you can actually create a virtual replica of yourself who will continue to act in movies uh, indefinitely. And the first half of the movie is live action. The second half of the movie takes place in this bizarre animated near future in which animated Robin Wright goes on this desperate quest to find 
her missing son. And uh, it really got to me. It's, it's an emotional film, partly because it's so visually compelling and also a very clear-cut indictment of the system that it was not made within. It's not a Hollywood movie. It's, it's really about how everything being digitized and also corporatized is sort of destroying storytelling, and yet the movie is a great response to that. It's on VOD right now. Are people going to still see it when it opens theatrically, uh, first uh, in New York in late August and then uh, in other markets in, in September? Like, I'm not totally sure about that, but I certainly would recommend that people make the effort to check it out now if they can, because it, it's a movie that, that is a lot more fascinating than simply, you know, the, the presence, the, the premise itself. It's, it's actually a, a really remarkable achievement of, of innovative storytelling. I love Ari Fallman and I love Waltz with, with Bashir, and I've been tracking this for a long time, so I've, um, I'm behind because I spent uh, 10 days in, in, uh, in Europe, so I will catch up with this one. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, so basically this whole podcast episode is, is recommendations for what Anne should and shouldn't see. So we're really covering a lot of ground here. <laughs> and don't see the Woody Allen, don't see the Zach Braff, see the Congress. Okay. I'm seeing both of those. I'm, I'm going to continue to skip the Zach Braff, though, I'm, I have to confess. That's, you'll survive. So, so let's talk a little bit more about, about distribution platforms and, and the way the industry is changing since I mentioned the Congress is on VOD, which is more and more a marketplace that we're covering with increasing aggressiveness because we really want to know how it's working out for people. Now, there was a big story in the news recently about Time Warner and, and sort of its role in all of this stuff. So maybe you should fill us in a bit on that. Well, basically what's going on is that as the as Comcast is going to pick up, you know, Time Time Warner Cable and and as AT&T is going to pick up DirecTV, um the content providers, the big media companies, in this case, 21st Century Fox in the form of Rupert Murdoch, are kind of freaking out because this consolidation is is going to make it more difficult for them to negotiate the kinds of fees that they need to do. And so in order to combat this, they're going to try to get bigger. And um, a lot of people thought that Google would get involved or Netflix or, or something like that. But it, it's sort of terrifying, actually, assuming that Rupert Murdoch gets what he wants. He's been rebuffed so far. Um, and Time Warner has no interest in this, uh, at least uh, so far, given what he's offering. But everybody's speculating that this is actually going to go through. And, and if, or or if, 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 if 21st Century Fox doesn't buy Time Warner, somebody else will, you know, like Google or Netflix, or, or Time Warner will buy Netflix, or something like that is going to happen. It's all going to get bigger. And I just, I hope not. I hope it doesn't happen because even though you can see why they want it to happen, it doesn't serve us. And this is where I do give points if you want to read a piece that just goes through all the reasons why uh, this isn't going to be good for the consumer. Nikki Fink did a good job on this. And so we arrive at another installment of Nikki Watch for our our climactic (laughs) segment, which we took a hiatus from. But I I think this is actually, it's interesting that you bring it up because would you say this is maybe the first really strong uh, sort of compelling read she's produced since since, uh, Nikki relaunched? 
Well, this is a case where, where, again, this is her sweet spot. She is a really astute uh, business uh, reporter. What she likes to do is is to speak directly to her readers and say, hey, you, this is what it means to you. This is where she's smart. That's a smart thing to do. And so instead of just being an objective, um, you know, this is what it means to Time Warner or this is what it means to, to Fox, she's got the sense to sort of speak to the people and say this is why this is a bad thing for you and to call upon the justice department you know to to actually get off their butt and and do something about it i it's it, it, listen listen she's doing her thing you know um on a day-to-day basis just as we all are um you know this she's she she can read she's she's one of these people she could read every single thing that anybody's written about this you know understand what the what the what the analysts are saying and then come out with a point of view you know and that that she did well. Yeah, I'll, I'll give her credit for that. I'm still sort of skeptical until I see her reference one of the movies that I've recommended to her in in, in this particular podcast. So I hope she'll uh, maybe take some time out of her her week and, and watch. Watching movies is not what she does. <laughs> I'm telling you, the Congress on VOD. She doesn't even have to leave the house. It's right there in front of her. <laughs> All right. So that concludes another segment of uh, Screen Talk. Now I, I just want to point out to people we are officially on itunes so thank you for being patient as we uh, worked out some of the kinks to get there Uh, if you're not an apple user you can also subscribe to the rss feed which we're listing on uh, thompson and hollywood and on the indywire main site so uh you know check it out leave a review if you want to uh we can, ask us we questions for what we should questions. call. You know, we'll we'll we'll, t- we'll take it on. We, we can we can handle that stuff. So, um, all right, Anne. Till next time. Bye, Art. She said, "How'd you like to waste some time?" And I could not resist when I saw little Nikki crying.